My name is Helena Kennedy and I'm the principal of Mansfield College and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the 12th Hans Lecture, um, a lecture uh, that was set up um, by Mansfield College in recognition of the great uh, benefaction uh, to the college by Guy and Julia Hans, um, who've really been more than generous to us um, over many, many years. And uh, Guy went to Mansfield College, and uh, he and his wife Julia have really been great supporters to us in more ways than financial, um, and their generosity of spirit um, has been a, a, great, a great sustenance to us. This lecture, which was established in their name, um, has been given by the great and the grand, Jimmy Carter to Peter Mandelson, from Helen Clark, the Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand, to Paddy Ashdown, and the roll call is of very distinguished uh, speakers, the great and the good, and no less tonight. Um, we have one of the great, I think, probably the greatest legal professional in the United States of America. Clarence Darrow once said that the trouble with the law is lawyers, but Helena Kennedy says the great thing about the law is lawyers. Um, what we know is that law only really lives when life is breathed into it by those who believe in justice and who can make it work for their clients. And, uh, and David Boyce, who's here with us tonight from the United States of America, is one of the truly great lawyers um, in, in the world. Um, so we have a great good fortune in having him to speak. And uh, I'm very glad to say that he's going to speak about human rights and the rule of law eight centuries after Runnymede. So we can claim that it all started here. Um, I, I just wanted to, to comment on the fact that he's coming to give this lecture and it's really rather kind of poignant that it's coming just now because um, Mansfield is in collaboration with the law faculty and the divinity, uh, sorry, the uh, division uh, for, um, uh, that deals with law, is, um, is coming together to create an institute of human rights and it will be based at Mansfield College. And, uh, and that process is now well underway. And, uh, and so it's rather fine that we have such a distinguished lawyer giving this lecture tonight. Um, I would like to invite Guy Hans to come and introduce David Boys, our speaker for tonight. Guy. <laughs> Thank you, Helena. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, in the, uh, the West, uh, particularly um, in the UK, um, there's a, an attack um, on what people see as human rights um, getting down to minuta. What people often forget is, and I look around the room, and uh, there's a few people here who probably were born later. But what, what people forget is if you were growing up in the 60s, uh, around the Western world, countries which today we look at and think as being civilized, things were occurring in the Deep South, in the US, in Britain, which today would be regarded as totally inhumane and appalling. And throughout the world today, we look at different countries, and it's very easy for us to say they have a bad record on human rights. But we forget the journey we've made over the last 50 years. We forget where the West started from. And we forget how long it took us to get to the point where we've got to today. And when I came um, as a three-year-old to England, back in the early 60s. Uh, it's very, I have very few memories of uh, South Africa or Southern uh, Aberdeenshire at that time at all, except for what I remember because my father was a barrister with the police. Um, and then I was brought up um, reading the Manchester Guardian or having the Manchester Guardian read to me. And I had a very strong, overwhelming belief that the rule of law that law could make a real difference. And so I'm very, very pleased tonight that we've got here David Boyes. He's a lawyer who has made a real difference. 
Uh, he's a lawyer who goes out there and fights for what he believes in and has done it for a very, very long time. Whether it was in the Deep South, whether it was in the Supreme Court, or whether it was recently uh, with Proposition 8. And he and me have been friends for a number of years. We've been involved in a rather notorious law court case, and we've chatted. And the one thing which he has taught me is that law isn't just about cases. It's not just about textbooks. It affects how people think. And when we look around the world today, there are parts of the world which think in a way which is inhumane. And the Center for Human Rights, which Helena's dream is to establish at Mansfield, is to help those lawyers to have David Boises in countries which at the moment lawyers are possibly persecuted and they don't have the strength and they need help. So to me, this is a very, very important evening because it's not just about uh, David speaking. It's about David delivering his message, which is really about how the rule of law affects how human beings behave, how human beings act, and how human beings treat each other. David, I'm very proud that you're here this evening. I'm looking forward to hearing you. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and pleasure to be here. The term human rights is of relatively recent vintage. The concept that people, at least some people, are entitled to basic fundamental rights is older than civilization itself. It has existed in virtually every society, nomadic or sedentary, that has ever existed. The basic concept of rights, however, has changed enormously over time. And if you look at the definitions of rights that existed in many institutions, in many countries, in many societies over the last several millennia, what you see is a consistent change in the direction, not always as fast as we would like, but a consistent change in the direction towards human rights. And if you look at where we have come from where we started, you can see that there has been tremendous progress. That progress has taken place over essentially three axes. The first axis has been to expand the people that are entitled to rights. If you think about this country and my country 200 years ago, the rights that existed were primarily rights for white male property owners. When the United States of America drafted its constitution a little over 200 years ago, and it began with a rather deceptive description of we the people, the we in we the people was represented by white, male, mostly Protestant property owners. The journey that the United States has taken and the journey that many other countries has taken has been a journey of constantly expanding who is included in the we of we the people so that more and more individuals are able to participate in the rights that are guaranteed. And one of the reasons that the term human rights is of relatively recent vintage is that it only began in, really in the 20th century that people began to say, as John Locke said here over 300 years ago, all people, regardless of citizenship, regardless of nationality, have certain national, certain natural rights. And it is that passage of trying to move to a place where all of a society, all of a community, partake of the same rights that has been an important part of the movement 
that we've experienced. That movement is still going on. It's still going on in the United States. It's still going on in this country. It's still going on in virtually every country in the world. Because while we've eliminated most of the bastions of official discrimination against citizens, social discrimination continues to affect many, many of the citizens of all of our countries. And so when we are looking at countries where the abuse of human rights is far greater than our own, we need to keep in mind both where we have come, as Guy said, but also how far we still have to go in the movement of expanding the number of people that are included in whatever declaration of human rights we have at any given point in time. The second axis on which the journey and the evolution of human rights has taken place has been in broadening the definition of rights and indeed broadening what rights are included. In the beginning, most lists, declarations, statutes, codes that attempted to define the rights of individuals defended them, uh, defined them in terms of freedom from particular harms. Freedom from having your person and your property invaded. The freedoms that existed, the rights that were sought to be protected, whether you're talking about the ancient texts of India or uh, China, whether you're talking about the Iroquois Constitution of the North American uh, Native Americans, whether you're talking about the laws of the Incas or the, and the Aztecs, whether you're talking about the Cone of Hanarabe from Babylon, whether you're talking about the Hebrew Torah or the Greek and Roman philosophers, most of what they are talking about is protecting people from harm, the right to be free from harm. Over time, we begin to recognize that there is another set of rights that are essential to human fulfillment. And that is the freedom to act. Not merely the freedom to be free from harm, but the freedom to act, the freedom to speak, the freedom to debate, the freedom to worship, the freedom to peacefully assemble, the, the freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances. These freedoms to act were much slower in coming to be recognized as fundamental rights. The third axis on which the evolution of human rights has taken place is in the evolution of how those rights are implemented and enforced. In the beginning, the rights that were provided by ancient constitutions and codes and courses of conduct were rights that were defined primarily in the prohibition of certain private activity. For example, the individual and the family was protected in their person and property by prohibitions on theft, on murder, on assault. The problem with that definition is that it did not affect the action of the government itself. The early attempts to define rights of individuals were attempting to define the right of individuals vis-a-vis -vis other individuals, not vis-a-vis -vis the state or the sovereign. Because for many millennia, the sovereign was indeed sovereign. It was above the law. It had the ability to decide what the law was at any given point in time. And as long as that existed, any definition of rights was subject to, be, to abuse, subject to suspension, subject to essentially being eliminated, either for an entire society or for any group within that society. 800 years 
ago next year, a group of very determined barons, not too far from here, drafted a document that they convinced King John to sign, convinced in part by uh, taking over the Tower of London. Um, but he signed a document that was initially described as a charter of liberties. Uh, and you would think from that it had something to do with uh, human rights, and it does, but not so much because it is a charter of liberties. Because as a charter of liberties, the Magna Carta, as we now call it, uh, left a lot to be desired. Uh, for one thing, uh, most of what was in there um, had been in an earlier charter of liberties that King John's predecessor, Henry I, had issued as a proclamation at his coronation uh, five score and 15 years before the Magna Carta. For another, most of what was in the Magna Carta was a division of the spoils between the barons and the king. Who could take what from the forest? Who could take what from the river? Uh, who could, um, uh, how much had to be paid um, when uh, a state passed from one generation to another? It was essentially a financial negotiation between the barons and the king. What was in there in terms of a Declaration of Rights even compares relatively poorly with the Iroquois Constitution uh, or the Hebrew Torah or many other centuries-old attempts to define the rights of individuals. But there was something very remarkable about the Magna Carta. Indeed, there were four things that were very remarkable about the Magna Carta and that have had an enormous influence on the evolution of human rights. The first of those was that it involved a transfer of power from the central authority out. Now it's true the transfer was to a relatively limited group of people, uh, barons and earls who held uh, property uh, through the king. But it was a transfer of property, a transfer of authority from the sovereign. And today that doesn't seem so strange. That doesn't seem so remarkable. We have seen that throughout the last several hundred years of our history. We've seen that even in our own lifetimes, where central powers have ceded more and more authority to representative uh, groups where representative democracy has made enormous uh, advances, where limits have been placed on central authority. And that has been the direction of political science over the last few hundred years. But it's easy to forget that until around 1200, the movement was almost always the opposite direction. It had been to greater centralized power, to reduce the extent that individuals had control over their own destinies, and it had been to lodge that power in increasingly powerful individuals. That had happened in Greece. It had happened in Rome as the power was transferred from the Senate to, an, to a triumvirate, to uh, ultimately to emperors. It had happened in feudal society as kings and monarchs had increasingly consolidated their power. The direction of society for hundreds of years before 1200 had been to increase the centralization of power. And what was happening now is that there was a devolution of power. And that was remarkable and that was an important step towards the evolution of human rights. Even more important, what happened with the barons and King John 800 years ago was that the king accepted 
that the king was not above the law, that the king did not have the power unilaterally to change the law, that the king did not have the power arbitrarily or capriciously to deprive people of the benefits that the law, to which the law entitled them. That was an even more remarkable accomplishment. This was not a revolution that changed a regime. This was a revolution that changed the way all regimes were supposed to operate. Because what it said was that all people are entitled to the benefit of the law. And that the only way that somebody could be imprisoned, fined, their property taken, or, as they say in one of the paragraphs, their standing in any other way affected, was pursuant to the law of the land. And that was something that was a remarkable statement in 1200 or at any time prior to that, that everybody is subject to the law. And there's a, a great paragraph um, in the Magna Carta that is often quoted that says, uh, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay any right or justice. And that's a, that's a valuable concept and it's a great principle. But even more important is the immediately preceding paragraph in which the barons drafted and King John signed, saying that all actions that impacted an individual's life, liberty, or property had to be pursuant to the law of the land. Couldn't be arbitrary, couldn't be capricious, couldn't be changed, couldn't be suspended. And when several centuries later, um, uh, King James II uh, suspended certain laws of Parliament. The ultimate result of that was the 1689 Bill of Rights, in which the very first one says that it's a promise by the new monarchs, William and Mary, and all of their successors, that no subsequent monarch will attempt to suspend the law of Parliament, and it is illegal to do so. The journey from 1215 to 1689 was not always easy. Indeed, uh, shortly after the barons had retired, uh, uh, King John had seller's remorse and uh, said he uh, was going to uh, reject what he had signed. Uh, moreover, um, Pope Innocent III um, invalidated it um, by a papal bull uh, because it interfered, according to the Pope's uh, interpretation, with the divine right of kings to govern. Uh, however, King John died shortly thereafter um, of semi-natural causes, uh, and he was uh, succeeded um, by his nine-year-old son, who became Henry III. And the first thing that the regent for uh, the young king did, the regent was uh, William Marshall, uh, uh, Lord uh, Pembroke, uh, who had been involved with the Magna Carta in 1215. And the first thing he did was issue the new version of the Magna Carta that incorporated all of the important provisions. In 1216, a new version was uh, issued in 1217, and in 1225, uh, the version that ultimately ends up um, in the British statutes uh, was issued now by Henry III, who had come of age. And that process, continuing through the Bill of Rights in 1689, set the standard for what the rule of law means. And the rule of law protects human rights 
by depriving the sovereign of the ability to take them away. It pre prevents the sovereign from overruling what the law is in order to substitute the sovereign's own desires. Now, a third remarkable accomplishment of the Magna Carta was that it contained a self-enforcing mechanism. It enabled the barons, if the king reneged on his promise, which we know he did, to come in and not only seize the king's lands, but to enlist all of the countryside in their campaign. And the king gave permission for that to happen. It was remarkable because for the first time, not only was the monarch, the sovereign, promising to abide by the law, but the sovereign was accepting a mechanism to hold the sovereign to account if the sovereign failed to keep that promise. The, the fourth thing that was remarkable about the Magna Carta is that it introduced democracy. Now, to be sure, it was not a great deal of democracy. Uh, it only involved 25 barons. But 25 barons is a big step from one monarch. And these 25 barons were given the power to determine whether or not the king was violating, the sovereign was violating the promises of the Magna Carta, and to decide that by majority vote. So that you have not only a self-enforcing mechanism, but the mechanism that is chosen is essentially the mechanism of representative democracy. And what you have seen over the course of the last 800 years is both the concept of the rule of law, the concept of democracy continue to expand and in their expansion has contributed greatly to the development and evolution of human rights. It would, however, be a mistake to equate the rule of law with human rights. In the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights uh, issued uh, by the United Nations, um, in the preamble, it says that human rights are protected by the rule of law. And there is no doubt that that is true in many cases. Because what the rule of law prevents is the government, the sovereign, from changing the law at its will to the, to the detriment of citizens. But the rule of law says nothing about what that law is. You can have laws that are predictable and reasonably enforced and adhered to, which is the requirement of the rule of law. And yet those, those laws can not only not protect, but sometimes can actually hinder human rights. When I was a young lawyer, as Guy Hans was saying, uh, working in civil rights cases in southern Mississippi in the 1960s. We had just finished an era in which the state had laws that forbid African-American children and white children from going to the same school, from drinking from the same water fountain, from riding in adjacent bus seats, that was the law. And if someone had not enforced that law, someone could say, you're not abiding by the rule of law. Because the rule of law says that nobody has the power to change the law except through normal processes. 
And if you tried to change the law through normal processes in Mississippi in the 1940s, the 1950s, or the 1960s, and perhaps even in the 1970s, if you had to rely on the normal procedures for changing that law, those laws would not have been changed. And so the first thing that we have to recognize about the rule of law is that there is a certain content neutrality about the rule of law because it says that the government is going to enforce uniformly the laws as they exist. And those laws may be good laws, in quotes, or bad laws. They may be laws that favor human rights or are neutral about human rights or actually disfavor human rights. But all of those are the rules of law that have to be applied. And what that means is that it becomes particularly important in terms of the evolution of human rights to determine how those laws are going to be established. And we come now to the question of democracy and what democracy means and should mean for human rights. Again, democracy has been a powerful engine for the development of human rights in many uh, cases. Many of the advances that we have seen in human rights, not only in the initial human rights of freedom from harm and then the next group of human rights, which were the freedom of act, but a third group of human rights that have really only come into focus beginning in the 20th century, which is the right to have, the right to have food, shelter, clothing, and education. Um, none of these rights, none of these human rights, were at all thought about when most of the thinking, initial thinking, about initial rights to be, of individuals to be free from harm or even free to act were being implemented. But we now, I think, recognize that the freedoms to have are in many respects just as important as the freedoms to act and the freedoms to be free from harm. In December 21 of uh, uh, 18, no, uh, 15, 1591, 1591. Um, there was a Dominican friar in the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean of the United States, Caribbean Sea, outside the United States. And he gave a Christmas sermon about the lack of spiritual or logical justification for the cruel treatment of slaves by the Spanish. Uh, that sermon changed some things, improved to some extent perhaps the way uh, Spain approached uh, some of its charges. But today in Hispaniola, which is the country of Haiti and the Dominican, the island has Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The citizens there, while no longer slaves, endure much of the same cruelty and deprivation that Father Antonio, Antonio Montesesos spoke about in the 1500s. And that cruelty and that deprivation, although it comes not as slaves and not as a result of uh, a lack of laws in terms of freedom from harm or even freedom to act, but simply because there is no right to have a decent education that will allow people to have a decent job and to earn a decent living. And so part of the expansion and evolution of 
human rights along the first access, or the second access, the access of what rights are included, is directly tied to how those rights are implemented and enforced. And there are fundamentally three ways that human rights are established. One is by the legislature, by parliament. And when you were talking about the Magna Carta, when you were talking about the uh, Bill of Rights of 1689, the idea was that the foundation of law was what parliament had decided or what tradition had established, including through the common law courts. But all was subject and, and explicitly subject in the Bill of Rights of 1689 to Parliament's decision. Now, if democracy and representative government leads to the expansion of a human right, that's terrific. If it doesn't, the only other two sources are the executive and the courts. And the executive is particularly limited because the executive relies on the laws of the legislature in order to fund and direct and authorize particular action. The executive can act to protect freedoms from harm. The executive can act so as not to interfere with freedoms to act. But the executive has relatively little ability to address the right to have. And so when in the Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 uh, from the United Nations, when they direct the articles that relate to the right to have, those are directions to the legislatures of the world and to the people of the world to provide for those rights to have. And uh, Article 22, when it talks about the right to Social Security, uh, Article 25, when it talks about the right to food, to decent food and shelter and clothing and medical care, and Article 26, when it talks about the right to education, are all rights that cannot be implemented, cannot be enforced without the participation of the legislature. The courts play varying roles in varying societies. In Britain, the common law courts were the original source of most of the rights that were articulated in the Magna Carta and have been the foundation of much of what has become law through Parliament. In the United States, the courts were given a special role in terms of the development of human rights. At the time of the drafting of the Constitution, the drafters of the United States Constitution did two things that were quite out of the ordinary in terms of the way societies had been governed up until then. First, they established a judiciary that was given the power to interpret the law, including the Constitution. The idea that unelected people would be given the most sensitive power, which is the power to determine what is constitutional and what is not constitutional, which is another way of saying what the legislature can do and what the legislature can't do, and which is another way of saying it is the power to say what the people can do and what the people cannot do. It is the power, in effect, to suspend democracy, to give that power 
to people who were unelected was an enormous step. But the founders of the American Constitution took another step. And that is, they set out to make that judiciary independent. They gave the judges lifetime tenure so that they could not be removed from office. They provided that their salaries and benefits couldn't be reduced while they were in office. They uh, provided that they would be appointed by the executive for life with the consent of the Senate. There would never be an election. They would never go before the people, either to get their jobs or to keep their jobs. So what the founders did was they took an enormous step, and some would say an enormous risk, because they vested in the least representative branch of the American government the most sensitive power, the power to suspend democracy. Now, there have been times when the court has used that power very wisely, I think most times. There have been some times in our history where it, has, where it has fallen short. But in the main, the judicial power in the United States has been a primary driver of the expansion of human rights. One of the cases, as Guy Hans mentioned uh, earlier, that I have been involved in over the last five years is the fight in the United States to permit people to marry the person that they choose regardless of sex and sexual orientation. Uh, Article uh, 18 of the Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 in the United Nations says that every person um, uh, has the right to marry the, the person that they love. Um, Now, that did not necessarily at the time contemplate same-sex marriages. Um, But the principle uh, was a principle that we believed was applicable to all people, that it was not um, a situation in which the government ought to be telling people who they could and who they could not marry. But when we started and we filed, the, we filed our first case in 2009. When we started, what we were confronted with was that the law, the law democratically enacted, was that marriage should be limited to relationships between one man and one woman. And in, 19, in 2008, the year before, Um, what had happened was the California Supreme Court had decided under the California Constitution. In the United States, not only is there a federal constitution, but each state has a constitution that covers things that the federal constitution doesn't cover or can. Under the California Supreme Court decision, the California Constitution guaranteed everybody the right to marry the person they loved, regardless of sex, regardless of sexual orientation. It took about four months for the voters of California to change the Constitution. Because under California law and under the law of many states, the voters at every election have the ability to change their state's Constitution. Now, it's a little unusual in California. This could be done by majority vote. Uh, at a single election. Most states require uh, a more elaborate uh, process for the very purpose of protecting against what happened in California with respect to what was later called Proposition 8. Uh, Each proposition on the California ballot is given a number. And the number that was given to the proposed constitutional amendment that would forbid same-sex marriages was Proposition 8. That passed by 52% of the vote. And so we had a law 
and if you believe in the rule of law, that was the law that had to be enforced. It, it had been democratically enacted, if you believe in democracy, that was the law that uh, ought to be enforced. But it was a law that we thought fundamentally infringed on the basic human right to marry the person that you love. And so the only remedy was a judicial remedy. And the judicial remedy only existed because of the decision in the late 1700s of the drafters of the United States Constitution to give this awesome power to, in effect, suspend democracy, to interpret the United States Constitution, to change that law and enable the implementation of marriage equality. Now, we had some good legal arguments, um, fortunately. Um, uh, not only did I think that we had on our side the, the principle that was right, the human rights principle that was correct, but we had a history of United States Supreme Court decisions establishing the fundamental right and fundamental importance of the right of marriage. In uh, the state of Wisconsin, uh, the legislature had passed a law, uh, perhaps not an unreasonable law, that said that people who had abused an initial marriage could not get another marriage license, at least while they were delinquent on their obligations from the earlier marriage. Uh, the case arose for somebody who had uh, repeatedly refused to pay child support from the children of an early marriage, wanted to get married again. Um, uh, the court said, the legislature said, you don't get another marriage license until you uh, comply with your obligations from your first. Um, not an unreasonable position. Supreme Court said that law is unconstitutional because it interferes with the most basic human relationship, which is marriage. And the, the court said that even though Wisconsin has some reasons, some good reasons perhaps, for this law, it isn't sufficient to save its constitutionality. And so the court suspended democracy in Wisconsin and required Wisconsin to give this marriage scoff law another marriage license. The state of Missouri passed a law that said imprisoned felons can't get a marriage license. Uh, now, in the United States, when you are convicted of a felony, you lose all sorts of rights. Um, you lose the right to vote, um, among other things, one of the most basic <coughs> civil rights that you can have. And so the state of Missouri said, we certainly are entitled to deprive somebody who is imprisoned felon, not even somebody outside, of the right to marry, because not only is that a natural consequence of committing a felony, but uh, the purpose of marriage is to raise children, and you obviously can't uh, raise children or even have children in a uh, imprisoned uh, situation. Um, and the Supreme Court took that case, and they looked at that case, and they said, we understand what Missouri's trying to do. And there's some rationale behind it. But marriage is such a fundamental right. It is so important to the rights of liberty, association, dignity, the pursuit of happiness, that Missouri cannot deprive imprisoned felons of the right to get married. And so when we went to court, we said, if an imprisoned felon can get married, if a married scofflaw can get married, surely these two loving couples, we had a gay couple and a lesbian couple as our plaintiffs, ought to be able to get married. 
And the other side said, the purpose of marriage is to create children, it's procreation. Um, and we said, well, you can't procreate when you're locked up in a jail cell. Um, and a lot of people get married uh, in the United States all the time of an age and circumstance that they're not going to have children. And nobody says that they ought not to be able to get a marriage license. We then went to trial. And one of the remarkable things about that trial was that we brought in all of the history of discrimination, uh, all of the history uh, that had affected gay and lesbian citizens uh, in the United States and around the world. And the judge at the end of the trial made a finding that said three things. And these were the three things that we had advocated at the trial. One, marriage is a fundamental right. And indeed, there could not be much dispute about that. The only dispute was whether two people of the same sex ought to be entitled to that right. Second, he found depriving gay and lesbian couples of the right to marry seriously harmed them and seriously harmed the children that they were raising. And that was a point that we had made not only through our witnesses, but through cross-examination of the defendant's own witnesses. The defendant had brought uh, two witnesses, uh, two expert witnesses to trial. Uh, one an expert on uh, political power and the other uh, an expert on marriage. And uh, the expert on marriage is, had been somebody who had been one of the leading proponents of limiting marriage to uh, a man and a woman. He'd written books on it. He'd given speeches on it. Um, uh, on cross-examination, however, he had to admit that marriage had enormous social, psychological, economic benefits to all couples, whether they were same-sex or heterosexual, that the children that were being raised by a married couple, whether heterosexual or same-sex, were, were harmed significantly by not having the stability um, of a, and commitment and recognition and validation of a marriage. So the judge could hardly have concluded otherwise when the judge found that depriving gay and lesbian couples of the right to marry seriously harmed them and their children. The third thing that the judge found was that depriving gay and lesbian couples of the right to marry did not help anybody. It did not improve heterosexual marriage. Uh, it did not represent any danger to the community. The only rationale for opposing marriage equality was the rationale that said that from a moral and religious standpoint, marriage and sexual relations ought to be heterosexual, not homosexual. And what we argued and, and what the court found was that while the First Amendment to the American Bill of Rights that is attached to the American Constitution prohibits anybody from interfering with the free exercise of religion, that it gives everybody religious freedom. It also prohibits the government from any establishment of religion. That is, it separates religious doctrine from legislation, and it prohibits uh, a state or the federal government from imposing rules or laws that are simply designed to codify religious principles. And as a result, um, declared um, the California Constitution to the extent it prohibited um, marriage equality to be, un to be unconstitutional under the federal constitution. Uh, 
Now that is, in some respects, perhaps a dramatic illustration of the extent to which the courts can and do play a role in the expansion of human rights. But it is critical that to the extent that we rely on the courts, we also try to rely on the legislature and we try to bring public opinion along at the same time. Because you don't want to have a clash between what we think of as human rights and what we think of as democracy. Particularly in societies that have a tradition of civil liberties, democracy and human rights have got to be reconciled. Now there are places in the world where that's probably not possible right now. There are places in the world in which democracy is and will be at odds with basic human rights. 539, Cyrus the Great of Persia uh, conquered uh, Babylon. And uh, his scribes um, wrote uh, a description of how when Cyrus the Great accomplished this, he freed all the Babylonian slaves and decreed that all of the inhabitants of the Babylonian Empire would have freedom of religion. Now, before jumping too quickly to the conclusion that Cyrus the Great was a, a reformer, um, it's um, probably appropriate to keep in mind that he did not free the Persian slaves. Um, and uh, minorities uh, under his rule uh, had a decidedly mixed um, uh, result. However, there are two things that are significant. First, as early as 539 BC, he recognized that it was useful to portray himself on the side of religious freedom. And second, it is, it is to compare what the goal was of Persia 2,500 years ago with what the goal is of Persia today, modern Persia, Iran, in terms of freedom of religion. I said earlier that there had been enormous progress towards human rights. And I think, as Dr. King said, the arc of the universe does bend slightly towards justice. But we can never forget that there are places in the world in which that arc is bending backwards. We can never forget that there are places in the world where human rights have less credence, less credibility, less protection today than they did 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you could have much greater freedom of religion in most Middle Eastern countries than you can today. 50 years ago, you could have much greater protection of human rights in what is now Pakistan than you can today. 50 years ago, or 60 or more, uh, Africa was still in a form of bondage. That bondage has been broken. The, um, racial discrimination in Africa that characterized centuries of that continent has now largely been eliminated. But in its place, you have religious, um, sectarian discrimination and violence. You have uh, some of the worst uh, laws uh, with respect to sexual orientation that you do anywhere in the world. And what you have done is you have substituted the burden of racial discrimination for burdens of sectarian, religious, sexual orientation discrimination. So we have not 
moved nearly as far over the last 50 years as we may like to think. And the progress that we have made is not nearly as secure as we'd like it to be. And so at every avenue that is open to us, through the legislature, through the courts, and where possible through the executive, we have to continue to push for human rights. Because there are probably, probably half of the world today, more than half of the world today, lives in a country where it would be a crime to advocate, let alone implement, the Charter of Human Rights promulgated by the United Nations in 1948. That is the task I think those of us who are interested in this have. And that is the task that we implore everybody to join us in. Because everywhere in the world where people do not have the basic human rights that everybody recognized unanimously, every member of the United Nations in 1948 recognized these were basic human rights. And yet, not only have we not implemented those, but we have, we, the people of the world, have made it and permitted it to be a crime even to advocate those human rights. God bless all of us. God bless what we can become. Thank you. Can I, um, I just wanted to uh, say what an extraordinary um, evening you've given us. Uh, that was a really wonderful lecture and it, uh, you know, it drew obviously on considerable experience and I loved the fact that not only was it historic and, and it started in many ways here, um, but it was also, I think, um, qu quite ambitious in its scale uh, in, in reminding us of how law human rights um, and democracy live alongside each other and are so interdependent and so important to each other if, they're going to, if it's going to really make for a civilised world. And so I really want everyone to join me in saying what an extraordinary lecture this was. Not a note, not a note. Um, and that's a kind of statement of the kind of lawyer he is. But can I say to you, David, it was a wonderful, wonderful lecture. Thank you. Please. Now, this lecture can't end without my saying very publicly um, how important Guy Hans has been to Mansfield College. Guy came to Mansfield College as a young man. People tell stories about the young Guy Hans, how Guy Hans came and his entrepreneurship was visible from the word go, and how people here at Oxford were employed by him, even when he was a student, because he stole, uh, he stole paintings, he created a whole kinds of great sort of almost pyramid-selling uh, <laughs> communities doing his bidding, and, uh, and so... We knew then that he was going to be important to us, and we made a very sensible decision in asking him to join our community. And the incredible thing tonight is that he's with us. He has left the kind of attractions of Guernsey to spend this uh, short period of time with us. A rare occasion, but special to us, and we are absolutely thrilled to see you, Guy. But I want to tell you that there have been occasions when Mansfield College has been looking into the abyss financially, and it has been Guy who has seized us back from that, and I want to thank him very formally for all the good things he's done for us over the years. But I want to tell you all tonight that um, I, in coming to the college, one of the things that I have really 
wanted to do was was to build upon the the wonderful ethic that is um, Mansfield. It's open arms to a wider community. It's a great story about the fact that 80% of our students come from uh, state schools, from the maintained sector. And they come and they enrich Oxford and they get a wonderful experience and go off and do great things in their lives. Um, and all of that's made possible by our students who go on to do other things. They go on and make great lives for themselves and they help and contribute back. Um, but Guy... Um, has recognised that in the project of creating the Institute of Human Rights, we're building on that great story of Mansfield, on the way in which it is egalitarian, in the way in which it believes in uh, you know, giving something back and trying to um, uh, contribute to, to our wider world. And I want to announce to you all tonight that Guy and Julia... Um, are giving a gift to the, to the Institute and to the building of that building, which will also provide rooms for the students at, at Mansfield, uh, a gift of £2 million. And that um, great gift is partly going to be a challenge to other Mansfieldians um, who've gone on and left in that uh, it will be a matching fund. Um, to help with contributions that you might make. And not only will it mean that it will double it, but of course with gift aid, it turns it into a, an even more substantial gift so that for every um, pound that's given, it turns into something like you know £2.45 for those who are in the right earning back bracket. So I want to say very formally, Guy, this is, this is taking our, the project to a very different place. And now we've got sort of more than half the money that we need to make this building happen and the institute come alive. And so I want to thank you and Julia for making that, that gift to us to start this big one. Again.